0: This is Stacy Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines.
1: Madison-based food delivery service Eat Street is struggling to settle a class action lawsuit brought by its employees. Attorneys for the company say it's in dire financial straits and likely headed for insolvency. As a result, E Street says it can no longer pay a $1.2 million settlement to workers, reports the Cap Times. That settlement is a result of a class action lawsuit brought by delivery drivers for the company, which alleged E Street violated labor standards by failing to compensate workers for expenses and paying under the minimum wage. The settlement agreement has morphed since it was first reached in December 2021. Now it may change again after East Street says it's struggling to pay creditors and a search for a buyer hasn't materialized. Attorneys for workers say they're skeptical the company is facing such dire straits since they're still operating and have not declared bankruptcy. Workers are asking a federal court to force East Street to abide by their previously agreed-to timeline.
0: Madison is gearing up to pick from six options to place a potential train station in the city, bringing bringing along with it federal passenger rail that could connect Madison to Chicago, Milwaukee, and Minnesota. That's as the city hopes to tap into expanded federal funding to increase passenger rail connectivity around the country. But top GOP officials in the state legislature could doom the plan before it even starts. They say they don't support spending any state money on the project. Today, Senate Majority Leader Kevin LeMayhew told reporters that he's opposed to state spending on the project, echoing a more blunt statement from Assembly Speaker Robin Voss last week, reports the Associated Press. But the early stages of the project could use or would use local and federal funding. It wouldn't require investment from the state. But those GOP statements could still spark federal decision makers to look for a different hub in the Midwest. If this sounds reminiscent of recent history, well, it is. A decade ago, a similar plan to bring federal passenger rail to Wisconsin was killed by former Republican Governor Scott Walker.
1: After receiving around five inches of snow overnight, the city of Madison is extending its snow emergency. That means that alternate side parking will be in effect tonight and tomorrow night, with the fines for not parking on the right side of the street increasing to $60. Free parking is also available in city-owned ramps downtown during a snow emergency, so long as you enter this evening before nine and leave before seven tomorrow morning.
0: And speaking of the snow, the city has updated its rules on the use of salt on public sidewalks. Homeowners may not use excessive amounts of salt or other melting agents that may accumulate on the sidewalk after the snow melts. Now, this is to prevent the salt from making its way into local bodies of water, which is harmful to local wildlife and the lakes. The city says that... While the new policy is mostly for educational purposes, fines for first-time offenses run over $120. And now on to today's top stories.
1: Birth cost recovery collections, also known as a birth tax, are a way for federal, state, and county governments to recoup some of the costs of birth from single parents on Medicaid. A new report shows Dane County has continued to take in millions of dollars from unwed parents, despite promising to stop the practice. WRT producer Nate Wickehout has the story.
2: In 2020, County Executive Joe Parisi announced that Dane County would end a practice in which the county bills the fathers of some children for half the costs of giving birth. That's the so-called birth tax, which seeks to recoup half of the cost of childbirth from fathers in cases when the mothers are unmarried and on Medicaid coverage. None of the money recouped goes to child support. Instead, it goes to the state and especially county governments, helping fund child support agencies even though the money is not child support and does not go to families. In Dane County, some of that money also goes to court commissioners. At the time, Parisi called the birth tax, quote, controversial, citing the stark racial disparities that exist with the practice. After he promised to end the practice, he was lauded with an award. But a new report by public interest attorneys finds that Dane County has continued to aggressively collect judgments. That report was released yesterday by ABCs of Health, a nonprofit Wisconsin law firm promoting health equity. It found that statewide counties have recouped over $106 million from the practice. Dane County alone has recouped almost $7 million. Bobby Peterson is the executive director of ABC for Health. He says that on top of going after low-income individuals, the practice facilitates racial disparities. That comes as Wisconsin holds the highest black infant mortality rate in the entire country. Peterson says that while the birth tax is not the sole cause of that statistic, it's certainly contributing.
3: It is a contributing factor because we know that prenatal stress for a pregnant person is not good it's not does not does not help to generate a positive birth outcome it creates a lot of uh, challenges and dealing with things like the birth tax and dealing with a child support agency that's you know pursuing your partner and you know it causes stress and strife.
2: In Wisconsin, eighty eight percent of black mothers on Medicaid were unmarried during the child's birth, meaning that all of those families may be subjected to the birth tax. That's compared to about fifty eight percent of white mothers on Medicaid during the same period. Meanwhile, a 2019 report finds that in Dane County, black babies die at at least double the rate of white babies. Public Health Madison Dane County, which issued the report, attributes that to social and economic challenges caused by discrimination and structural racism for black mothers. County Child Support Services will go after a father if they are unmarried and appears to be out of the life of the child. But this is not always apparent, such as in the story of Maria from the report. Maria received a notice from her county's child support agency requiring her to disclose the name of the father or be kicked off Medicaid. After putting it off for one week, Maria received another letter telling her that collection would be taking place, despite the fact that the father was her boyfriend and would both care for and financially support the new baby. And while the practice is billed as a way to keep absent fathers involved in the life of the child, Peterson says that the collections aren't child support. But this is a birth
3: tax. This is about repaying birth expenses to the state. The federal government and the county taking a cut. None of it goes back to the family, you know, or the child. So it's, it's a completely different process.
2: The mother is still able to ask for child support in these situations, meaning that not only does the father pay money to help support the child, but also to the government. And while Dane County put the brakes on new actions in 2020, they doubled down on their previous ones literally. According to the report, the county took in about $1.2 million from the birth tax in 2019, but in 2020, when they said that they would halt the collections, they collected around $2.2 million from judgments initiated before 2020, especially as the practice can take years to work through the courts. Dane County's Child Support Agency, which implements the policy, did not return a request for comment today. Neither did County Executive Joe Parisi. According to the report, Wisconsin is one of few states to pursue the birth tax and is the most aggressive in the nation. And while not all counties pursue the birth tax, Milwaukee ranks the top collector of birth tax money, currently sitting at over $69 million, while Dane County ranks at number two at almost $7 million. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wiggehoe.
0: Perhaps the key initiative from Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway is full speed ahead. The mayor's plan to bring bus rapid transit to Madison officially broke ground this morning. WORT reporter Aaron Ashley was on the scene.
4: I'm stood in a parking lot just a couple of blocks from the Capitol. Normally, this lot is empty, but today... It's filled with a tent and crowds of people waiting to hear the mayor's announcement of the new, upcoming bus rapid transit system.
5: Thank you so much, Secretary. Um, It's really an honor to have you here, um, and it's been a great partnership, and thank you all so much for joining us uh, today.
4: The big news? Bus rapid transit is finally breaking ground.
5: I am so excited to say that we are finally bringing rapid transit to Madison in a way that is transformative for our community members across the whole region.
4: Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway has made transportation one of her focal points during her time in office. Improving the speed of buses across the city is part of a strategy intended to keep pace with rapid population growth in Madison, one of the fastest-growing cities in the state. Over the last decade, the city's added more than 36,000 residents, and that growth isn't expected to slow down anytime soon. Faced with the possibility of tens of thousands of more cars on Madison streets, and physically constrained by the geography of the Isthmus, the bus rapid transit is designed to cut down on the time it takes to get from one side of the city to the other.
5: We all deserve mobility choices to get us where we need to go in a reasonable amount of time. And East-West BRT will do that for tens of thousands of people.
4: The parking lot we're standing in, Brayton lot, will be used to store and organize the materials and crews working on the new bus stations along the first of several lines to be constructed, the East-West line. The mayor says the bus rapid transit line will have ripple effects. With better transportation, she says, comes economic benefits.
5: The East-West BRT Line brings Madison into a league with other cities and regions that we regularly compete with for both jobs and people, and we have to be on the cutting edge of transportation, of housing, and of employment initiatives to make sure that we stay competitive with the other regions and cities around the country that are all looking for the same economic advantages that we're looking for.
4: Also in attendance was Governor Tony Evers, who voiced his support and admiration for all those involved in the Bus Rapid Transit Initiative. Although Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway has repeatedly stressed the need to improve Madison's metro transit system, she's faced stiff opposition along the way. Some have voiced concern with the related and somewhat intertwined project called Network Redesign, which will overhaul the bus system. While network redesign will come with more frequent service, fewer transfers, and more links to surrounding areas, it will also remove some bus stops from service, meaning a longer walk to the nearest stop for some. Final plans for network redesign were approved this summer, and the changes are slated to take effect next June. The second line of bus rapid transit is still to come. North and South Side residents will need to wait until the second phase of the project to have a rapid transit line that runs near them. The City of Madison has responded to these concerns by highlighting the Federal Transit Administration's ridership criteria, which are necessary to meet in order to secure federal funding. Construction of the East-West Bus Rapid Transit system will continue through 2023, with the first services scheduled to begin in 2024. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Aaron Ashley.
1: Last week, Wisconsin Red Cross workers voted to strike if a fair contract was not agreed to by, by both the American Red Cross and the workers. The organization was given a deadline of today, today, December 15th, and today the workers announced that the new contract had been signed and the strike had been averted. WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout spoke with Asme representative Neil Rainford, about what led up to the new contract.
2: Last week, Wisconsin workers for the American Red Cross voted to initiate a strike on the group's biggest blood drive of the year just before Christmas. They said that unless a new contract was signed by today, December 15th, they would pick it outside the Alliant Energy Center and would not be working the annual holiday blood drive. Well, today is that deadline and workers and the local AFSCME announced that the workers have signed a new contract averting that strike. Joining me now, is Neil Rainford, representative with AFSCME. Uh Neil, thank you so much for talking with me. My pleasure. So just to sort of get things started here, Neil, so this all started last week on Monday night when employees at six different Red Cross facilities across the state voted uh, to strike ahead of the area's largest blood drive of the year if a fair contract was not signed. So uh, just sort of kicking things off, what's been going on with American Red Cross workers here in Wisconsin? Why why did they vote to strike? All
6: right, so the Red Cross employees' uh, contract actually uh, terminated in September of 2021, and uh, prior to that, uh, the end of that last contract, uh, the Red Cross employees had uh, asked their employer to enter into negotiations as of August of 21, 2021 for a new uh, for a new contract. There was um, a lot of uh, difficulty securing dates with the Red Cross to negotiate for the balance of 2021. And uh, even into 2022, the Employees Union filed uh, uh, charges with the National Labor Relations Board asking it to um, intervene and um, compel the employer to meet and uh, negotiate in good faith with its employees. Uh, Ultimately, uh, negotiations kind of got underway in earnest in the summer of 2022, and there were a number of issues resolved. Uh, but by the deadline for reaching a new agreement that had kind of been established by the parties for September 15th of 2022, there was still at least one major issue outstanding. Um, at that time, the parties were there was an extension of the existing collective bargaining agreement for 90 days for emergency negotiations to occur with a new deadline established of December 15th. Uh, after which the uh, collective bargaining agreement that uh, was in place would no longer be extended and the parties would be free to uh, engage in, you know, uh, strikes, pickets and and other sorts of actions like that. Um, So as of uh, two weeks ago, Monday, there was still, in spite of several negotiation sessions since September, uh, no agreement that would result in Uh, the bargaining committee for the union recommending ratification of a new contract. And the union's bargaining committee uh, took that situation back to its members, uh, reminded the members of what had uh, been offered by the employer up to that point, and asked the employees um, whether they would like to take a strike vote. And the employees uh, agreed to uh, take a strike vote and voted overwhelmingly to Uh, Notify the employer that if there was no agreement reached by December 15th, the employees would be striking the employer's December 23rd holiday blood drive. The holiday blood drive is not uh, your average blood drive, you know, set up in a cafeteria of a a small company or a courthouse. Uh, This is a massive blood drive where uh, the employer, uh, the Red Cross collects about 700 units as compared with 50 to 70 on an average uh, day and an average blood drive. And um, it's an important drive for the organization. Um, and for that reason, the employees identified it as uh, one of the best days to uh, engage in a one-day uh, strike regarding what they pers- what they believed were unfair labor practices that the employer had engaged in up to that point. Um, so fast forward. To Monday of this week so December 12th um, the parties uh, had one final day of negotiation scheduled. The parties negotiated uh, throughout the uh, day and into the well into the evening and night. Um, unfortunately there was still no agreement reached um, but the union left the employer with a uh, final offer. And uh, let the employer know that we would recommend ratification of that final offer if it were accepted. And also let the employer know that the following night, uh, Tuesday, uh, December 13th, that we would be voting um, one way or another to uh, either accept whatever offer was on the table or uh, to reject that offer, in which case there would be no more ratification meetings scheduled. and um, the parties would, you know past the deadline of the 15th and the strike would um, would occur on the 23rd um just moments before uh the part the union assembled for its membership ratification vote the employer uh reached out to the union via email and uh conceded uh to the union's demand for a wage increase that was fair and equitable to all employees across the organization The bargaining committee met uh, on an emergency basis and uh, right at the outset of the ratification meeting and agreed to recommend ratification of it. And subsequently, it was explained to the members of the bargaining unit uh, who who debated it and uh, ultimately voted overwhelmingly to accept uh, the new contract.
2: Uh, so, so as I mentioned before, and, and as you have mentioned now, the strike has been has been called off after you you have made this agreement. Uh, so, what what does this new contract say, sort of specifically? What's in this new contract that was not in uh, any of the previous ones that were discussed?
6: So, the big change that led to an ultimate agreement is the Red Cross's willingness to continue to fund. A pay structure that rewards employees for continuing employment with the Red Cross. The Red Cross and the union have long agreed to a wage schedule in which as employees uh, continue to work for the employer at um, increments of three, uh, seven, nine, and 13 years, they are paid uh, increasing uh, step increases over that period of time. And the, the total value of all of those step increases over those first 13 years are about $8 per hour, and they come in increments of a dollar or 2 an hour, depending on which step and what time. The employer was proposing to uh, discontinue funding, essentially, of that process, which would have made it uh, fundamentally inequitable to the newer employees who um, have not uh, worked long enough to secure those raises. It also uh, has had the effect of dissuading employees from continuing employment with the Red Cross, uh, seeing that, you know, their coworkers working alongside them had, you know, enjoyed the benefits of the schedule and received these pay increases, um, but they would be denied them and would be essentially left at starting wage rates for the balance of their career. So that was really the issue. It did require significant solidarity on the part of the longer term employees who had already worked their way through the schedule and were already enjoying the benefits of that wage schedule to stand in solidarity with their coworkers uh, who were newer and to uh, uh, commit to uh, striking uh, on their behalf.
2: Well, I've been talking with Neil Rainford, representative with AFSCME, about the new contract Red Cross workers here in Wisconsin have agreed uh, to averting a strike that was scheduled to begin next week. Neil, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me. My
6: pleasure.
1: Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us.
0: Every other Thursday, we air an excerpt from the Out of the Box podcast, which is focused on supporting current and formerly incarcerated people and their families. This week, contributor D. Star sits down with Dee Dee Morgan The first black woman warden to serve at the Oak Hill Correctional Institute.
7: What's up, everybody? This is your host, Dee Star here with Dee Dee Morgan. Dee Dee, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself?
8: Well, thank you, Dee. Thank you for asking me to be on your podcast today. This is a first for me, as you know, I don't normally do these things. So um, you have really impressed me enough to have me. Take this first step. I've been asked by others to be on their podcasts and I've declined, not because I didn't value them, but I just was, I think, a little scared because I've been away from the Department of Corrections now since 2018 and it's just taken me some time to recenter and balance myself. So I appreciate your patience because you asked me a while ago and I declined. And now that we've gotten to work together a little bit more, I'm feeling a little more comfortable. So I appreciate your patience. So a little bit about myself. I am a Madisonian, I feel. Now, I wasn't born here. I was actually born in Tokyo, Japan. My dad was in the Air Force and he was stationed here at Truex. And so my family moved here. We were supposed to be here temporarily. And when my dad was reassigned, my mother said look, I have four little girls. I need to settle down and, you know, have some stability. So my parents remained here. I'm the fourth of those four girls. Um, And so we stayed here in Madison. I grew up here, went to East High School, and uh, then went to UW-Whitewater with a degree in social work. And then when I graduated, I was offered a limited term employee position at Ethan Allen School for Boys.
7: Oh, wow. So I, AKA Wales.
8: AKA Wales. Yep. So I started my career at Wales. The interesting thing is when I was a freshman in college, I volunteered at Wales and said, this is not what I want to do for a couple of reasons. One is that I grew up in an almost all female household. The only man in our house was my father. And so then to go and volunteer at a, Facility that was all boys. I was really quite out of my element, and then the other reason I was not um, interested in working at Wales is because I didn't think I wanted to work with, with this population. So um, the inmate
7: population, right?
8: Right, with the inmate population. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I had a uh, my parents had a family friend who had a, a position that was that had become open, and he said I could be a limited term employee, and so. I went there, and I loved it. Literally within a matter of three days, I realized that God was taking care of me and put me at that facility. When I graduated in 1984, there were social workers everywhere. You didn't need a social work degree, and there was no certification required. So when I graduated with that degree, it was very difficult to get a job. So um, I was fortunate enough to not only have someone say, look, you can come and work here, but for someone to see that I had an affinity to that kind of work and so i i was with the department of corrections for 18 years i did leave the agency three times but i came back every single time
7: <laughs> so what about Wales led you to want to be in corrections
8: oh well the first thing is i started there on my 23rd birthday and young men could be there until up to their 19th birthday so i wasn't that much older than they were and i don't really i'm not sure i remember how to navigate that other than that there were a lot of staff there who were very supportive, but I just found the process to be very challenging, very interesting, very different than anything I had experienced. I would frequently read one of the young men's file and just wonder how they are still functioning and still able to, you know, smile and say, good morning, Miss Morgan, or how are you, Miss Morgan? Um, there was a lot of trauma there. There's a lot of hurt there. They inflicted a lot of hurt, but they, many, many of those young boys and men had been significantly harmed as well. So you
7: stayed at Wales for how long? One year. And then you moved on to? To work
8: in the uh, juvenile aftercare program here in Madison. So I worked with youth coming out of Lincoln Hills and Wales that were were in the Dane County, um, Rock County, Iowa County. I had a couple of counties that I worked with. I had somewhere around 17 jobs, so I'll, I'll do my resume, I'll, I'll, pri- I'll try to make it brief. So I started at Wales, I was there for a year, and then I became a juvenile aftercare agent working with kids coming out of Ethan Allen and Lincoln Hills. I was there for about a year, and then I was offered a position on the juvenile parole board. And all of these jobs were limited term employee positions, none of them were permanent positions. So I went to be on the juvenile parole board, and then I was offered a permanent position. Now, mind you, in the meantime, I am desperately trying to get a permanent job with the state. And I'm taking those state exams, and I'm not scoring very well. So persistence is one of the things that that I've learned because I don't test well. So I wouldn't even be able to score high enough to inter- to interview, let alone you know have an interview. So then um, I was actually... Uh, asked to lead the Juvenile Parole Board and become work for the department's Equal Opportunity Employment Office, the Affirmative Action Office. And I remember seeing the Affirmative Action Director, it was at Crazy TV Lenny, when, one Saturday, and she said, you know, we're looking for an Equal Employment Opportunity Specialist, would you be interested? And I looked at her and said, you know, I don't know a whole lot about civil rights other than my experience as a black woman. And she said, yeah. She said, I can teach you the law. She said, what I can't teach you is how to write a report, how to interview an individual, how to turn an interview into an interrogation, how to testify in court. So she really, at that moment, in that 15-minute conversation, taught me about skills versus knowledge. And I took that with me for the rest of my career. So I became the department's Equal Employment Opportunity Specialist for four years. And then my boss left the department and she went to Department of Transportation and I interviewed for the position and he did not get it. And I was pretty salty. I was actually, I was quite, quite frankly, I was angry because I was in an acting, the acting position at that point. And um, when somebody else got the job, then I ended up having to train that individual. And that just wasn't very comfortable for me. And I clearly remember that that saltiness that comes with being the fourth kid of four kids of all girls I got some mad skills. I have the kind of skills that can make your life miserable, and in doing that, I could also ruin my reputation. So what I did was I decided rather than ruin my reputation, it was better if I leave the organization. So I left the Department of Corrections, went to Department of Transportation for ten months. It was my first supervisory position. Didn't understand it. It wasn't like when I started with the Department of Corrections that I understood the statutes, that I understood the, in, you know. The, what we were doing. It just wasn't interesting to me. So then I interviewed for the uh, human resources director for the Wisconsin Correctional Center System. And the warden at the time, I went to do a second interview and he took me to lunch and he said, you know, I'm a little worried about hiring you. You're the affirmative action lady. So what I did when I was in the affirmative action office is I went around and did investigative discrimination and harassment complaints. And he said, how do you get over that hurdle of people saying, Eddie Morgan's here. Somebody's in trouble. And I told him that, you know, my job as an investigator was not to prove what people said happened, but to go in and find out what happened. And that requires a certain level of credibility and that I have that. And he actually hired me and I stayed there for four years. And then I realized that I wanted to try something different. And there was a human resources director position at Stoughton Schools. So I went there for two years. And after two years. Shout out to Stoughton.
0: Yep. Shout out to Stoughton. <laughs> And that was D-Star with the Out of the Box podcast, speaking with Dee Dee Morgan, the first black woman to serve as warden at the Oak Hill Correctional Institute. Now you can hear their full conversation on the Out of the Box podcast, found wherever you get your podcasts.
1: It may look like winter outside, but Madison's Lake still haven't frozen over. Don't worry, next week's cold weather should bring safe ice our way by the weekend. To prepare, for ice fishing se- to prepare for ice fishing season, Nate Wiggyhout and Pat Hansberg break down the different ice fishing strategies on this week's Fishy Business.
2: Alrighty, I'm on the line now with Pat Hasberg over at the DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. Pat, it's been cold, but maybe not quite cold enough for the uh, ice to really be coming up. So let's just just sort of starting things off. Looking at the ice, what's, uh, what's the ice look like these days?
9: Well, there's not much of it to look at, to be honest. It was uh, earlier this week we had some ice up on Cherokee. I actually was out. Uh, Sunday afternoon got into some decent bluegills but the ice was on its way out then and actually one guy went through on Sunday then on Monday I heard that three guys went through and then on Tuesday I heard another three guys went through so that uh, and by Wednesday nobody was fishing up there so um, that's now we got the snow that came in and uh, with some cold temps on the way though we're optimistic that things should lock back up pretty soon but as of right now there's n- no official ice that I know of around town.
2: Don't yeah, don't be uh, don't be going out there unless the uh, ice is safe to go. Hopefully like you said a couple weeks here maybe even next weekend uh it's looking like we may have a little bit of ice to uh go out on. So uh just to just to sort of start things off here let's I know there's not a ton of action happening these days like I said it is cold and not a whole lot of people are out there but uh from what you've been hearing wow how is the uh how's the fishing been around town lately?
9: Well, uh, yeah, with, without much ice to fish, you know, I, I don't get a ton of reports in the shop, but folks are still doing well, uh, fishing for walleyes from shore and, and in the boat if you can get out. But most of those fish are shallow right now, uh, chasing bait fish around. So uh, they've, they've been, uh, shore anglers have been, have been doing really well. Uh, good areas to check out are the University shoreline down, uh, you know, near the Union down there. We got uh, the Tenney Park breakwall is always a good spot to check. Uh, on Lake Monona, they've been doing really well along the city shoreline down along, uh, John Nolan Drive and that down there. And the musky bite on Lake Monona and Wabisa, uh, still continues to, uh, be pretty good if you can, uh, launch a boat and get out. Um, there's uh, definitely still, uh, some hungry muskies out there.
2: Now, Pat, that's that's sort of what we got for a fishing report this week. Not too much going on, mm-hmm. at least not until the uh, the ice sort of really starts to form here. And as much as I sort of bemoan ice fishing uh, here and there, I do go out ice fishing uh, quite a bit in the winter. Uh, and one thing that has always sort of uh, uh, puzzled me a little bit is uh, the there's really two... Big ways to to ice fish, and that's to use a tip up and to use a, a pole. So, just to sort of sort of start things off here, tell me tell me what a tip up is and how it sort of differs from just like a regular regular pole ice fishing.
9: Sure, uh, yeah. Well, for folks that aren't familiar, uh, a tip up is a, a flat board that uh, sits stationary over a a hole that you drill in the ice, and uh, you, if folks have seen folks out ice fishing uh, they, they have a flag on them so it's a it's a it's a system that you set up with a, a line down in the water and it, it's connected to a, a spool that ha- is on a spindle that turns a uh, a thing that holds your flag so when it when a fish uh, bites on your line it turns that spindle and sets the flag from which is set when it's set is down and then it sets uh, the flag will go up so when when you get a flag that goes up you go over and uh, pull the line up uh, hand over hand, and it's um, it can be a really great way to extend your options. I guess um, I know when I'm out, I like to um, I'll, I'll usually jig with a, a jig pole for maybe panfish or something, but then uh, set a few tip ups out, uh, you know, with with a, uh, a large shiner uh, minnow on there, and um, you know the, it's it's a it's like I said, a great way to expand your options and, you know, maybe tie into a, a nice uh, pike or a walleye or bass. Um, and, and yeah, it's just uh, spreading things out a little bit that way.
2: I agree with you there. I usually have at least one tip up and a, and like a little jig pole going out in the water whenever I go out. Uh, you know, just something, just sort of uh, expanding the options a little bit. Well, what 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 are sort of the the pros and cons and sort of the differences between the two? I know you said you know more likely to catch a, a bigger pike with the the tip up and things like that. So let's let's sort of go over some of the pros and cons of each.
9: Well, you know, uh, with a with a jig pole, you have the um opportunity to move around it's you have it in your hand and you can drill a a bunch of holes and kind of hole hop is what is what folks call that uh so the advantages to having a jig pole is is that you can move around and and the other big advantage is that you have the option to give your bait that's down there a little more life uh by jigging um with the tip-ups it's really just um you know a stationary line that just kind of sits down below the ice and you kind of let the bait do the work that's down there. So you're, you're, you're putting your bait on there alive and, uh, it's, it sits down there. Um, but you know, it, you, you, don't get a lot of action, uh, with the lure or the bait that's down there. So it just kind of sits stationary, but you know, the pike this time of year are cruising around down there. Their metabolism is a little uh, lower and they're not moving as fast, uh, so they're looking for easy meals. And so, if they see a shiner under the ice, uh, just kind of hanging out there, they, a lot of times they'll come up and inspect it. Um, but you know, if 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 they don't uh, like what they see, they might just swim on. Whereas if you're if you're if you were jigging a lure down there, you had the opportunity to kind of entice that fish in a little bit more. But having tip ups out, uh, like we've said, is uh, you know a great way to just expand your reach and expand your options and you know you you just never know it's always always exciting when you see that flag pop on a tip up that's for sure.
2: And with the the jig pole what sort of what sort of lures do you usually use for for the jig pole when you're ice fishing?
9: Well it it depends on what you're fishing for but like I said generally if I'm out uh, say pan fishing looking for bluegills or crappies or perch in shallower water, um, I'm I'm using small jigs there. But um, you know, later on in the season, when we get ice out over the bigger, bigger water, I'll go out to mid lake humps and I'll set tip ups out there, and I'll set them up for walleyes, which is generally a, a smaller minnow on the tip ups. But then uh, the jig pole too is uh, something like a uh, a jig and wrap made by Rapala or just a, a jig tipped with a minnow. And, you know, just like I said, kind of hole hop around and you look for fish and um, that jigging action on your jig pole will a lot of times uh, bring fish in. But having the stationary lines out there is just a, another another option to expand your reach.
2: Well, Pat, we're uh, sort of wrapping up here. Do you have, you know, for people, you know, getting ready for ice fishing here like we said maybe another week or so we'll have some some good ice out there for some good ice fishing any final advice for people to uh to sort of know as we get ready for uh ice true ice fishing season here in uh, madison
9: well you know I, I just have to encourage everybody to be safe and uh like i said if you if you if you got some some water that you're interested in fishing uh i would encourage folks to Look for other folks that are already out there and already traveled on the ice. But um, if if folks uh, have any questions about ice conditions, they're they're certainly welcome to call the shop here. They can reach us at two four one four two two five, or uh, of course we have the uh, six zero eight big fish fishing hotline, and I and I try to keep that. Uh, up to date with uh, current ice conditions so folks are always welcome to check those two resources
2: don't go falling in the ice stay safe out there well well pat thank you so much for talking to me again this week uh remember like pat said you can hear updated fishing report updated ice report anytime that you really want a uh, 608 big fish is the number that you need to call pat thank you so much again for talking with me again this week and uh hey good luck out there always a pleasure nate stay on top.
0: For all the Santa's helpers running around buying presents for children, you may want to think about the tantrums your thoughtful gifts could possibly bring. Now, sibling rivalries are often created by the concept of what's mine is mine, and what's yours is mine, too. Now, Charles, or Chuck Kalich, is a professor of educational psychology at UW-Madison. And in this edition of Radio Chipstone... Kalish and contributor Jennifer Fields unpacked the concept of children and ownership. I am the very proud aunt of seven
7: nieces and nephews, so I've done my share of babysitting. I remember giving them their favorite blanket to settle them down for a nap. I also remember shrieks of mine, mine, mine when trying to break up tiny tantrums over toys. What I don't remember is when objects of comfort became objects of ownership. According to Professor Chuck Kalish, for kids, the concept of what's mine is tricky.
3: The idea of ownership is a little more complicated, which involves something like a a right. This is mine in the sense that not just that I like it or not just that I'm holding it, but that there's some abstract sense in which I have some, some legitimate claim to this object.
7: Kalish says when it comes to ownership, Children need clarity in order to get the concept.
3: Parents give very inconsistent feedback about ownership. In a certain sense, a young child doesn't own anything. Uh, their you know, ability to, to use objects really depends on their parents' uh, forbearance. And so parents can kind of trump kids' ownership rights so as when, for example, a parent will tell a child that they have to share their toys their toys, if they own the toys, well, how can a parent tell them what to do with them?
7: For kids, it's all about possession. If I hold it in my hands, it's mine. However, relinquishing ownership can be confusing and hard. Kids have
3: often been said to kind of not really understand that when you give something away, you really lose control over it. You know, so kids there have this idea, like if they give a gift for a birthday, they kind of think that they have some ability to take that toy home with them after they give it. And so that that one of the really interesting things about ownership, different from other kinds of rights or or statuses that we have in society, is that it can really easily be transferred.
7: According to Kalish, ownership is even more perplexing when it comes to abstract ideas, like telling stories or intellectual property.
3: One way that we think about it is that uh, the holding, the physical possession, is a pretty important clue to ownership. It's the sort of canonical, the prototypical kind of idea of ownership is that I have control over something and I have rights to it. And the idea of a house or a piece of land, you have to understand just the idea of the abstract rights. There's no sense of this sort of physical possession. Uh, and so you might imagine that, that children would, you know, that kind of concept is a little more abstract, the idea in what sense in which you own a house, even though you're not, say, physically holding it or even physically there. People have been very interested in the ownership of ideas. And when do kids understand that this is my story or my idea? And that's a really interesting one because if I give you my idea, it's not like I lose it. right? If I give you my toy, I don't have it anymore. But If I share my idea with you, I still have it.
7: Kalish says, understanding ownership comes with time. While screams of mine, mine, mine may send you searching for earplugs, just give it a little time.
3: Ownership is a pretty arbitrary idea. It's really a, a particular cultural construction. And even though different cultures may all have something that looks like ownership, the rules around ownership are really quite, potentially quite different. They're arbitrary. Who, who decides who owns what? How do you transfer ownership of something from one person to another? And so all of this stuff that seems incredibly obvious to us as adults, it's just common sense. Uh, has to get learned and, and, and kids have to pick it up usually through observation but um we shouldn't think that there's anything you know easy or obvious or intuitive about the way we organize ownership
7: of objects for wort i'm Jennifer fields
1: and that's a wrap for wort's live local news at six your script editor was russ Mackey. welcome to the team russ Your reporter tonight was Aaron Ashley. Special thanks to feature contributors D-Star, Pat Hansberg, and Jennifer Fields. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Wiggy helped produce this newscast. And Ms. Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton.
0: And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Hey, you'll never miss an episode of the local news on WORT when you listen to it on demand as a podcast get it wherever you subscribe. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening and good night.